Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Hocus Pocus from 1993 with my wonderful guest, Jamie Lynn Beatty. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and this week I have my wonderful guest, Jamie Lynn Beatty. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here again. Thank you. I'm I'm honored. Well, we're honored to have you. So as I mentioned, we did watch Hocus Pocus from 1993, a modern classic. I can hear some people at home maybe going, oh, that's not a classic. Technically, TCM says if a film is over 25 years old, it is deemed a classic. And this film, I can't do math very well, but I think it's tw- is that that's over twenty five years that's old. That's definitely, right? yeah, definitely. It's funny that you said Hocus Pocus from nineteen ninety three, as if there's a Hocus Pocus from like nineteen seventy two that everyone knows about. You're correct. I didn't need to add nineteen eighty three, but I feel like I have to be protective of this one because I I can just feel people going, "That's not a classic," and I'm like, "Oh, Queens, it is." We are old. It's a classic. It's so good. They're going to make it into a remake, you know, soon. and then They are, and I heartily disagree with this remake. I heard you say, yeah, they're going to ruin it. I love Bette Midler. I love Sarah Jessica Parker. I love Kathy and Jimmy. This movie is perfect as it is, and it should not be revisited, is my opinion. <laughs> don't ruin Don't ruin it. But it is what it is. I have accepted it. Um, so anyway, Hocus Pocus, beloved Halloween classic. Jamie, how'd you feel this time watching it? It's one of my favorite movies. A lot of people like grew up on this movie. I saw this movie for the first time only like three years ago, which is crazy. But I've since seen it many times at like the El Capitan Theater and like drive-ins and like various places at home and whatnot. But it's funny to discover a movie that, that defined their childhood, but I discovered it in adulthood. Did I see it with you maybe for the first time? No, probably not. The first time I saw it was with our friend Nick at um at the El Capitan Theater. Like I saw it in like arguably the coolest way to see it in like a Disney theater with a live organist. You're right. That is very cool. I saw it a couple years ago. They did a special showing at like a haunted theater here in LA. I can't Ooh. remember the name. It's a super old theater that's totally haunted. And they did like a pre-show where they had like three performers come out and sing the songs. And uh, and then they did the movie. That was really cool. But you're right. I hadn't thought about how Disney owns the El Capitan Theater and how that must have been extra special. And you have the organ. It's very fun. The reason I chose this film is because this is going to be like around Halloween time. This is coming out. In my opinion, I think this is the best Halloween film out there because it's the most accessible for everybody and has everything in it. 
as you mentioned, this came out when we were kids. I actually remember when it came out. It was 1993. I think I was like six, and I was too scared to see this movie. Um, and I thought it was scary. And so my first viewing of it came two years later at gymnastics summer camp. In the afternoons, they would sit us down in front of a TV and they'd put a movie in. And uh, this movie we liked so much that we watched it, I think, every single day that week. Because it's like, it was like a week-long camp. Wow. Um, so that was kind of my intro to it and how I fell in love with it. And it makes so much sense. I mean, this movie, like, it's from the 90s. It's got a lovely 90s aesthetic. But it's got, like, the little jump scares for people that want to be a little afraid. But it's not too scary. And it's got, like, really fun comedic performances and it has musical numbers so it's kind of got a little something for everyone it does a really good job of like taking tropes that we know about like halloween and witches and putting them to use in a way that's familiar and fun we'll get into all that i'll do the plot synopsis first plot synopsis hocus pocus which was called abracadabra i guess in south america oh they didn't know what hocus pocus meant I've seen this movie maybe a bajillion times. This movie is seared into my brain. I cannot even count the number of times I've seen it. I own it on DVD. It's fabulous. Okay, so Hocus Pocus. Picture it. The year is 1693. We meet this fella, Thackeray Binks, whose name is not Zachary. When you're a child, you genuinely believe it's Zachary, and then you grow up and you're like, they're saying Thackeray. What? What? Because your little brain can't comprehend that that's a name. Okay, so Thackeray Binks is awakened. The, oh, oh, we're going to get into my beefs, too, because I have a lifetime of little, like, things where I'm like, ooh, that's not correct, or, like, ooh, it doesn't work. Thackeray Binks awakens one morning, um, and something isn't right, and his sister is missing. And uh, it turns out these three witches, the Sanderson sisters, oh, they live in Salem, Massachusetts, by the way. That's another little extra layer. Salem, Massachusetts, 1693. Thackeray Binks awakens one morning. His sister Emily is missing. The witches have taken her, and they are going to suck the life out of her to make themselves younger and live longer. And they do this successfully. Thackeray Binks tries to stop them. It doesn't work. They suck the life out of his sister. She dies. Um, They turn him into a cat that will live forever, you know, with his guilt for not being able to save his sister. The witches are caught. They are hanged. But before they are hanged, which they really show their legs, by the way. Like, Disney used to, like be a little more, they used to show us more stuff and talk about more stuff than they would probably do now. Anyway, Sanderson sisters are hanged, but before they are hanged, uh, Winifred is able to open her evil magical book and put a spell on them that one day when, I don't don't think she says this, but what's going to happen is one day if a virgin lights the black flame candle, they will be able to come to life for the evening uh, to try to get their powers to live forever. Um, So she's arranged the spell that they can come back from the dead. But again, it only works for one night only. We seamlessly transition into the year 1993 to a teacher telling the class this story. And she's wearing a black witch's hat. And that's how we pan out. And it's just splendid. And then we meet our protagonist, Max. And you know that he's different from the other kids because he's wearing a tie-dye shirt. And they are all wearing like... Northeasterner clothes. I don't know. But we quickly find out that Max is from Los Angeles. His family just moved here and he's different from these people because he's laid back in California and he doesn't like Halloween. He thinks all this is dumb. There's this beautiful girl in his class who is also smart. And she's like, I think Halloween's cool. And he's like, I think you're cool. Here's my phone number. Call me. 
And then she gives him back his phone number. Max ends up going home. He's kind of disappointed that Allison didn't want his number. That's the pretty girl, Allison. And he's bike riding in a beautiful forest scene that mirrors the forest scene that Thackeray Binks just had of running through the forest. And you go, oh my gosh. So he gets bullied in a graveyard by these two jerks, one of whom makes fun of him for kind of being from California, but seems like he is a skater in California. He definitely has that 90s like skater vibe going on. Whatever, he meets Jay and Ice. His name ain't Ernie no more, it's Ice. And um, you know this because it's carved into the back of his head with a razor. I don't know, it says Ice. And um, they steal his cross trainers, which are shoes. He goes home, he's like, parents, this blows. And then we meet his younger sister, Danny, who's just so fun and precocious. And he's supposed to take her trick-or-treating and he doesn't want to, but he has to, so he does. And when they're trick-or-treating, she kind of embarrasses him in front of these guys that bullied him earlier and they get into a little fight, but they make up at Allison's house. Allison has this really huge, beautiful house that's serving great candy and Max gets to talk to her again and he's super excited about it. And he comes up with this plan to like hang out with her longer, which is like, look, if you really like all this Halloween stuff, why don't you make a believer out of me? Like, let's go to that old Sanderson sister's house and see if all these legends are true. And she's like, okay. And Danny's like, I don't want to do this, but okay. So they all three go together to the Sanderson sister's house. And it's abandoned, and uh, it's creepy, and there's a cat that like gets in their way and jumps on them. And Max is like, you know what? This is just a bunch of hocus pocus. Titular line. He's a virgin. He lights the black flame candle, and the Sanderson sisters come back from the dead. And it's awesome. And that the way they shot that is cool. We'll get into that too. So uh, the Sanderson sisters are back and they are played by the fabulous Bette Midler. She plays Winifred. Mary is played by Kathy Nae Jimmy. And um, Sarah is played by Sarah Jessica Parker. It's just dream casting. It's just wonderful and perfect. So these three witches are back. They want to suck the lives out of the children of Salem. Max is a believer now, so the rest of the movie, they spend the time trying to stop the Sanderson sisters, and eventually they think that they kill the Sanderson sisters out of, by the way, a plan that Allison has, because they listen to women in this movie, and it's fantastic. After they think they've anguished the Sanderson sisters, but do not, the Sanderson sisters come back, and they kidnap little Danny, and she's going to be the kid that they suck the lifeblood out of because she was the rudest to them. And they were like, we're going to teach you a lesson. So in the final moments, they're going to give her this potion that will make them be able to suck the life out of her. But Max is like, no, and he takes the potion instead. So they have to suck the life out of him. But as they start to do it, the sun starts to come up. And also Winifred falls on hollowed ground, which is the cemetery. And witches can't stand on hollowed ground because they turn to stone. So she's turning to stone. Her sisters are blowing up. She eventually blows up into like a really gorgeous sparkly dust. It's all beautiful. And then... Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, how could I forget this huge plot point? Since Thackeray Binks was a cat, he was a cat that whole time, and he was a talking cat that helped them, obviously. A talking black cat, because that's like a whole witch trope thing. Anyway, so in the end, Thackeray Binks' soul is released, and you're a little bit sad because you want Thackeray Binks to be their cat, but you also want him to be able to be free in his afterlife. So he rejoins his sister Emily as a ghost, and we get ghost closure, and then we get to see a shot of of Max and his sister Danny hugging each other. And also obviously Max and Allison got together 
And that's how the movie ends, like full brother-sister circle. And then we get some cool end credit scenes that kind of close some gaps with some of the other characters, like the parents and the bullies. And then the final shot is the spell book that should be totally dead because the Sanderson sisters are dead, isn't dead. It's a little eye. It has an eyeball and the eyeball opens. So it's like, oh, spooky things are still happening. And then we get to hear Bette Midler saying, I put a spell on you. It's a reprise from her earlier fabulous part of the movie. And that's that's pretty much Hocus Pocus. I feel we got through that movie. That was it. So yes, I freaking love this movie. I've seen it one million times. Not actually one million times, but a lot. There are always things I notice. There are always little beefs I have. Jamie, what do you want to talk about right now? I agree with you. I think it's got something for everyone. I'm always caught off guard when it starts in the 1600s because I'm like, wait, I forget that this movie like doesn't start in the 90s. It's just, yeah, it's delightful. And I think Thora Birch should get an Academy Award for this. The so. casting in this was fantastic. It really, truly was. The first thing I want to just point out in general, even though I just said like the casting is perfect, they do something really funny to me in this movie, which is they cast... <laughs> so Thackeray Banks is kind of like the first character that we meet. And they cast this actor named Sean Murray. He is playing Thackeray Banks. But he is not speaking the role of Thackeray Banks. All of his lines are dubbed by this guy, Jason Marsden. And so there's always a part of me that's like, well, why didn't you just cast Jason Marsden? (laughs) Why did you have to have a totally separate guy? You know, that doesn't totally make sense to me. Because Jason Marsden was an actor, too. (laughs) Like, he was in Full House. He played DJ's boyfriend for a couple episodes. He played Nelson. And he was in Boy Meets World. Yeah, so like Jason Marsden, who does the voice for Thackeray Banks, doesn't play Thackeray Banks in person, and they dub over all of Thackeray Banks' lines. I've just always thought that was a choice. There's got to be some reason for that. I think it's because they thought the guy playing Thackeray Banks was really cute. I think they thought maybe young people would think he was cute. Maybe. Oh, because the other guy was too nerdy? Like he didn't have the right quote-unquote look? That's sad if that's true. I also kind of thought when I was little that the guy that played Binks and Max kind of looked alike, so I wonder if there was something there too where they were trying to get two guys that kind of look similarly so they have this similar brother and sister story. Because that's what this film's really about. It's about cherishing your sibling as I speak to an only child about this film. That's my my main takeaway is how jealous I am of their brother-sister relationship. Yeah, because it's like the brother that couldn't save the sister and then the brother that does save the sister. And they cherish each other in the end. Bette Midler in this. Oh my God. I feel like she's not appreciated enough. We take her in this for granted. She took this bullshit trope that women are given. So anyone who's maybe not in Hollywood or doesn't know this, there's like this Hollywood idea that the second you turn 40, everyone sends you scripts to play witches. Meryl Streep literally said this. She said, when I turned 40, I got three scripts to play a witch that year. I would be honored to play a witch. Well, when you can play it like this, like it's so wonderful what she does. Yes, this is a hot witch. They're not just like, I don't know, the trope of the witch, this like old hag. They take that, but they make it funny. They make it a more full character. It's so much fun. And Bette Midler said this is the most fun role she'd ever played up till this time. She had the best time doing it. And I love I love that. So yeah, Bette Midler rocks it. And her and Kathy and Jimmy and um, Sarah Jessica Parker, I love that they each all have like a different uh, like character as a witch. Like I feel like a lot of times witches are like, we're the same, we're all evil. But we have like Winifred, who is the leader, who comes up with the plans. We have Mary, who's kind of like her, she's like a kiss up, but like always trying to please Winnie and she can't. And then we have um, Sarah Jessica Parker, who just, 
I hate to use the dumb blonde thing because I have blonde hair, but they make her the dumb blonde who's obsessed with boys, and it's it's very funny. She's fantastic. Everyone is given a chance to shine, and they like rise to the occasion. I think that goes with like the kids too. What I like about the kids in this is that like everybody gets a chance to save someone's life. It's never like I'm the boy and I got to rescue the girls. It's like everyone has their moment of like, I'm being brave. I'm taking charge. I'm saving us. And I appreciate that because if you watch films like like I love The Princess Bride, but I was watching it um, at the Hollywood Bowl last weekend. And it's so frustrating watching Princess Buttercup because she does nothing to save herself ever. She literally sits there while the prince and the Wesley and all of, like, well, everybody saves her. So it's nice to see like, oh, strong female characters standing up, fighting back, and a man that like works with them and listens to them. Like Max listens to Allison's idea to kill the witches and it fucking works. This is a very good point. <laughs> There's not a lot of ego there. So that's great. Just wanted to call that out because I appreciated it. So here are some of the things that I've noticed for years that I just want to share with people at home if you're watching this movie. You've, you may have noticed it too, but if you didn't, just look out for these little treats. My favorite little treat of all the little treats is when um, Thackeray Binks at the very beginning first goes to save his sister and he like has to, you know, jump in the water and like ride that little water wheel thing up so that they don't see him and he sneaks into the house, whatever. So Thackeray Binks sneaks into the house and he's all wet because he was in the water. And then there's a moment where they pan to him and he's really upset. And there's one bead of water that's stuck to his nose <laughs> that goes in and out as he breathes really heavily. And I am obsessed with it. I rewind it. I am fascinated by it. It cracks me up. Please check it out. Please check out the bead water heavy breathing acting. Um, I wrote down the line it comes after. Hold on. Let me check what I wrote down. Because I just, every time it gets me. I think I noticed it like maybe a decade ago. I don't think I've ever noticed that. That's very funny. I mean, I've been watching this movie. So if I've watched this every year since I was eight, plus a bunch of extra times, that's a whole lot of times seeing it. It comes after the tongue bite when they like, um, end a bite of thine own tongue. And they like bite it and put it into the cauldron. Uh, yes, that's, that's when there's the water bubble right under his nose. Please take note. I promise you'll enjoy it. It's just a little treat I look forward to every time. There are also several references. I freaking love when Bette Midler is about to do the spell on Thackeray to turn him into a cat, and she goes, jump back. That's from Footloose. She is referencing uh, Footloose. <laughs> Kills me. I love it. Because that's what he says in Footloose. And Sarah Jessica Parker was in Footloose. Yeah, she was. Yes. Um, so there's that. And they also have a Gypsy reference because she, Bette Midler was in the made-for-TV musical version of Gypsy the same year. Um, so when she's doing them, I put a spell on you. She does the like, my name's Winifred. What's yours? You know, because oh, that's my name is June. What's yours? Yeah. So it's the, she took that. Wow, you're so right. I've only had my whole life to think about this. And then one of my other favorite like little tiny moments, too, is when they're doing I put a spell on you. Um, Kathy and Jimmy <laughs> does bunny ears behind Bette Midler's head on the watch outs. So when they're going like, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. And there's all that choreo for one. One second, she puts bunny ears behind Bette Midler's head, and I freaking love it. It's just like a cute little joke that got put in the movie. 
so there's a zombie named Billy, who I did not mention in the plot synopsis, who at first we're afraid of, because Winifred brings him back to life, because she's like, if we can't hunt you on the graveyard, I know people who can. And so she brings Billy Butcherson back to life, and it's a guy that Winifred, Bette Midler, used to date, but she caught him cheating on her with her sister, Sarah, which makes sense, because in this movie, they make it like Sarah wants to sleep with everybody. She has sewed his mouth in death, so he couldn't tell his secrets even in death. And so she awakens him, and at first, as a viewer, you're afraid of him because he's a zombie. But then you learn, oh, he is a friendly zombie. He's able to, like, rip open the, the, the sewing on his mouth and talk. And he's like, wench, I despise you, Winifred, right? So we learn he's a friendly zombie. But when he first, like, slits open his mouth like that, uh, like, dust and moths fly out of his mouth, they did not CGI that shit. That was real whoa doug jones big doug jones fan doug jones is the actor in this that played billy butcherson and this was like one of his first big roles and he has famously gone on to be like the creature in so many things because he's a very tall very thin man um who like did mime in college so he's really good at creating these these like horror characters and he, yeah, he's famous for that. And he was in uh, The Shape of Water. He played the the mermaid sea creature man that she falls in love with. He, like, he was the lead, basically, besides Sally Hawkins and Octavia Spencer. Yeah, so he's famous for doing that. And this is like the start of it all. And he was also the first crush of several of my friends, especially my gay friends. Wow. Yeah, shout out to my friend Andrew. Whenever we would watch this together around Halloween, he'd be like, ah, oh, my first big crush, Billy Butcherson. Like, Aww. my little kid self had such a crush on him. And I was like, "Ah." Doug Jones is fantastic. I know a few people that have met him in real life, and they just say he's such a good-hearted stand-up guy. Like, really, really salt of the earth. My friend was in a movie with him. Wow. She was cast in a horror film, and they she shot her scenes with Doug Jones, and then their scenes got cut for the final <gasps> film. No! Yeah, but she has, like, a picture of her and Doug Jones in their full That's costumes. So she cool. was, like, he was the nicest. He was so cool. Ugh. So, isn't that great? And when he was in Pan's Labyrinth, he's, like, the creature in Pan's Labyrinth, too. Yeah, so, like, he's very famous for that. I remember I saw, like, some internet video that was, like, this is the most, like, unrecognizable person that you've seen a million times. Like, it's, like, the idea that he's been in so many things, but you wouldn't recognize him if you passed him on the street. Yes. However, now I feel like he's become more recognizable just because the internet has given him the spotlight that he deserves. Well, and he's so tall, too, so I bet in real life he already stands out just a teeny bit. So maybe if you stand out already a teeny bit and then people start to go, wait, is that Doug Jones? Maybe. But he is always so like unrecognizable in his stuff. And he's really great. You can tell, I mean, in this, that he's so good at the physical aspect of being a monster. My God. The scene when he's like stumbling around in the tunnels underneath the ground and the catacombs, if that's where they are. <laughs> it's great. And he actually gets to speak in this, too, because I feel like a lot of times he doesn't get to speak. That's true, yeah. Which leads me to another beef of mine that I've had since I was a child. The accents. Nobody has the same accent. They're all Mm. supposed to be from New England, and some of them are kind of British, and some of them are not. And that's fine. It's such an, uh, like, heightened reality to begin with that I just feel like, eh. And I think that's something when you're like, I've seen this a million times. I'm focusing on this right now. I think it separates the old from the new. I think when the people kind of talk in that way, it's like, ah, they're an older character versus like the cool new characters that say things like fat chance, things like that. Um, One of the final things I just want to point out for funsies is that because this is a Disney movie 
and Disney owns the rights to it, everyone has costumes in the background, right? It's Halloween, so the kids have costumes, the adults have costumes, but Disney could use their own costumes. So you'll see like Mrs. Potts in the background, like a kid's costume and like stuff like that. Um, so I would say another thing to just notice is like all of the people in the background if you want to. Like there's some great costumes back there, in the grown-up section, in the kids section. There's some racist costumes out there too, which we'll also talk about. So yeah, those are just like my fun little things to notice. One of my biggest beefs is that in general, oh, no wait, this is my first biggest beef. I'm sorry, I need to start from the beginning. My first biggest beef is at the very beginning, Thackeray Binks wakes up, but a half an hour later, it's nighttime. Riddle me that. Did Thackeray Binks take a late afternoon nap? and wake up for his sister to be kidnapped, it makes no sense and it's always bothered me. I'm sure it bothers nobody else, but it bothers me. I did not even notice that, but it's funny when you like think about how time is recorded in movies, because I guess I never thought about it, but that's, you, the way you tell time in a movie has to be established pretty early on. Because yeah, it looks like he's waking up in the morning following his sister to the woods, but then it's nighttime. It, it's sunset. So you're like, I don't understand. Let's assume it was a nap. We're fixing that beef. It was a nap. He took an afternoon rest and wakes up for the evening. Okay, I'm into it. We fixed that beef. My next beef has always been the parents, the supervision. In my entire life, as a human, an American human who celebrates Halloween, parents always escort their kids trick-or-treating. But in this town, the parents all go to a party. So two parts of this beef. One, if all the parents are at the party, how are people still handing out candy? Two, how are these kids totally unsupervised with no parents taking them trick-or-treating? There are some small children here that are out on their own. I have no problem with kids being out on their own and being independent, but I do think it is very unusual that there are zero parents around when the bullies are out bullying all the little kids, stealing their candy. Ice was going to hit Danny. So, like, I'm just saying, the lack of parental supervision I think about every time. Plus, if there was a party, wouldn't it be later than the trick-or-treating? Again, it's a movie, and it's a movie I love, but it's always bothered me. You're really insightful, and these are things I did not even think of, but they're brilliant and worth ruminating about. Thanks, Jamie. Another thing I thought about for a long time is the witches put a spell on the parents to make them dance all night. I've always wondered if people (laughs) really died from dancing that whole time, because I'm like, what if someone had a heart condition and they were forced to dance all night? And we're seeing them come out at the end, and they all look like they've gone to this killer party and had a great time. But if someone made me dance for like eight hours, I don't know that I'd be okay. And I think about these things. It's like the opposite of footloose, where it's like they make you dance all night. Wait, what's the opposite of loose? Foot tight. Yes, you're correct. Oh, this is so lame, but there's, okay. So just one small thing, the potion starts off purple and turns green. And I'm like, wait, why'd you turn green potion? You were purple. But again, neither here nor there, it looks great. Um, And then, so the witches come back and they don't know anything modern, but then sometimes they do. And you're like, how do you know modern stuff? Like, how do you know about like, pull over and show me your driver's permit? And what I've decided, I fixed this in my own head, is that sometimes they could absorb modern trends from the grave. So for most things, they might be clueless, but maybe there's a few things that they absorbed in their time when they were dead from the modern times. I have a theory that like, kind of like Wally, that they like studied just like they watched a couple movies or read a couple books and like observed a couple things and like 
just were mimicking what they heard. But when did they have time, Jamie? They only have this one night. They're witches. So they just like quickly consulted. I was going to say the internet, but that didn't exist then. Maybe like moments before the driver's license, like they saw somebody say that. They're just, they picked up stuff and they don't really know what they're saying. And again, it's fun for the movie. I don't actually mind it. But these were just things that I was like, wait, an inconsistency. Also, just for funsies, when they're drinking the cider, there's no cider in those cups. It cracks me up when I watch it. They're cider acting. But I'm like, there's nothing in that cup. That's an empty cup. I can tell. Again, Jamie, I've seen this so many times. The rewatch for all of these little, yeah. Zap. Oh, can only zap sometimes. There's inconsistency with the zapping. So Winifred has the power to zap people. But she doesn't seem to use it as often as she could or should if that was really her superpower. And my friends and I decided it was because of the technology because it would be too hard for her to do that all the time. It would cost too much money in production and special effects to have her zap people all the time because she's very selective about her zapping. And you're like, well, why don't you just zap more people more of the time? Probably also hurts her a little bit. That's a great point, Jamie. Maybe that's it, too. Oh, there's just another moment that kills me and cracks me up is when Danny gets upset at Max and she goes, I want to go home. And she like walks away. She doesn't like walk towards home or anything comfortable. Her spot that she soothes herself is a giant bale of hay in the middle of a bunch of very decorative um, jack-o'-lanterns. And that's just, it looks beautiful, but that always makes me laugh. Just like her dramatically crying into the hay. So those are some funny things. And at the end, I always get mad at her because she leaves the circle. We At the very end, they do all this stuff to protect Danny, and they find out that if you make a salt circle, that the witch's spells can't hurt you. And they're like, Danny, stay in the salt circle. And she's like, got it, cool. And in reality, they should all just be in the salt circle. Like, they don't need to fight back. They should just climb in the salt circle and just stay there. But nobody, again, listens to me ever. So only Danny gets in the salt circle, And then, um, you know, Billy gets his head knocked off because he's a zombie. So she tries to help Billy and she gets captured by Winifred. But she has about 12 seconds to run away and she just stands there frozen. And I'm always like, Danny, run. You have so much time to run. Why? She is eight. Um, She is a child. They are all children, actually. (laughs) So maybe that's why they didn't have this foresight, except for Billy. But who knows how well his brain is functioning, if we're being honest. Yeah. So that's it. Those are my beefs. Thank you for listening to the beef portion of this program. I still love this movie so much, but after years of watching, those collective beefs have added up, and now I had to bring them to light. And those aren't even the racist beefs. We'll get to the racist beefs, because there's a couple of racist things that happen. Okay, anyway, so there was that. Oh, and I did find out uh, that this movie, remember how they have that part with Daylight Savings Time? Mm-hmm, yeah. And they're like, there's one thing you don't know about, Daylight Savings Time, implying that the sun will rise sooner. That year, it really was daylight savings time on Halloween. I looked it up. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it wasn't really a full moon. It was a day after a full moon. So they almost got everything totally right for that year. Isn't that cool? I'll give them creative license on that. Yes. I wouldn't have cared either way, but the fact that it really was that, that's, that's awesome. I wonder if that was intentional or if it was just a coincidence. They had to have looked it up. No, I don't know, because they would have written the story. It just happened to work out that way. Making this movie even more lovely than it needed to be. The only thing that, like, always makes me go, like, this doesn't hold up and feels weird is the whole, like, virgin candle thing. Where I just go, like, especially because it's Disney, like, I feel like this idea of, like, virgins gets, like, talked about a lot by, like, witches and, like, in those stories and lots of fairy tales. And when you, like, think about the mechanics of what that actually means, it's, it's fucked up. 
That's what yeah. I have to say about that. I would agree with that. I'm like, totally. ooh, that's creepy. Yeah. I, I wish I want, and I feel like if they did it again, they would probably not choose that to be the defining. What do you think they would choose instead of that? That's a good question. Because I agree with you. I think it's just a little nonsense. Yeah, that's hard. What do they choose? Because there's this idea that, like, they can't just say children because that's, like, anyone. Maybe it would be, like, if a pure of heart person, you know, like, or someone who's pure of heart. Something defines innocence, yeah. Like how Aladdin was a diamond in the rough. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, or, like, someone, yeah, pure of heart, someone who, like... A newcomer, someone new to town or something, like... Yeah. Let's think about it. That's really interesting because I agree with you. I don't love that. I don't love like putting someone's sexuality as like a negative thing necessarily. You know, like it's weird. It's very strange, but it's a constant reoccurring thing in a lot of different horror movies. I think because it obviously means like innocence. It represents innocence. And I don't know. It's weird. Well, and also like how do you define virgin too is like a topic that we've talked about in um, I, I used to like mentor this Jewish teen group. And they were like, well, so if you're gay, does that mean you're a virgin? Because it defines sexuality, you know, in a certain way that people are like, but I don't agree with that. And, you know, what defines that? Yeah, gosh. But finding a parallel is hard. I think like someone with an innocent heart or pure of heart or something like that. Yeah, I agree. Or someone who has done like a kind, a selfless deed or something, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you on that one, Jamie. And you actually brought up something um, I really wanted to talk about because what I think is interesting too is this film has more like sexual innuendos than we're used to in Disney films, right? Because mm-hmm. it's got, they openly talk about him being a virgin several times. You could probably play the virgin drinking game for every time they say virgin. You'd probably get very drunk. And also... I always think about the trope of, like, especially, like, Sarah Jessica Parker's character as an adult, who's arguably, like, hundreds of years old, like, very much an adult, is, like, hitting on these, like, kids. Like, she has, like, a sexuality, and I'm like, ew, if the roles were reversed and she was, like, a man witch hitting on this little girl, you'd be like, creepy! It, like, it's, it feels predatory, but for some reason it's, like, okay, because she's, like, a hot, blonde young woman yeah right although i don't actually feel like she hits on anyone that's younger than a real adult like the youngest person that she makes out with is that mummy at the party who's clearly over 21 because that seems like an adult party but you're right that if she's 300 years old (laughs) and we don't even know she might even be older yeah obviously something about the way they lust over children feels predatory and i just go like if you were men the way you were talking about like children that's creepy oh see i think the children thing was for eating that was how I took it. I guess because Sarah Jessica Parker is sexual in what everything she does, I literally think it's just her character because she's like so sexy in her like delivery with other stuff that I go like, this feels weird. The stuff that I was looking at was like, um, they have a scene where um, Max and Allison and Danny go to talk to a police officer and say like, oh my God, the witches have been brought back from the dead and the police officer doesn't believe them. And it turns out he's not a police officer. He's in a costume and his costume is a police officer with a hooker. It's a couple costume. And I didn't get that as a kid, but I'm like, oh my God, Disney. Oh, uh uh-huh. Oh my God. That's their cute couple costume. She's supposed to be a prostitute and he's supposed to be a cop arresting her. That's their costume. (laughs) Like, and then they also talk about like dead man's chungs, you know, and they're talking about like balls. But the the witches don't get that. But the boys are like, shoot, don't chop off our chungs, which are supposed to be their balls. And I'm like, oh, Disney. Okay. Damn. Yeah. All right. 
So yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you you brought up the predatory thing though, because I, again, I am defensive of this movie. I've been watching it since I was a child, but it's nice to hear a perspective on on that because you're probably correct. It is a little predatory, and it would be creepy if it was a man. But it's fun. I'm glad that I'm glad they got away with it. Then I feel like she brings enough to the character that it doesn't make it just sexy. Yes, Do you I know what I mean? Like I she, they could have just objectified her, <laughs> but they also added this layer of like, she's really funny. Now I feel like sometimes stuff is too played too safe so as not to offend. And I think they don't even consider trying to do it in a smart way. Sometimes they just go like, they completely omit doing it. So I'm glad, even though that it might not fly again if they were to redo it now, I'm glad that they did do it in a way that was like well done back then because I just think the world wouldn't allow any of it now. But that's a whole other topic. I love what each, since each of these women is so talented, I'm talking about like um, Bette Midler, Kathy Jimmy, and Sarah Jessica Parker. There's always something going on with each of them. They are always doing something on camera and it's always something that adds. And so you could just watch the three of them all day and notice different things about what they're doing to add to the scene, to add to their characters. And they're so smart. I just, I could watch them all day. It is the best, like, women ensemble movie, I feel like, that, like, they all are equally strong and they're not, they're powerful. They're not, like, driven by men. Like, it's not like a romantic plot, even though there's, like, the, the subplot with the 90s kids and like romance that's really not the main focus although i do want to bring it to the full circle moment of the cuddles i love that max's whole journey is about like in the beginning he's spooning a pillow that he's pretending to be allison and in the end he's holding her in real life and they never really get a kiss which like you know of course we all wish there was a kiss but they have the almost kiss but I just think it's adorable that like the full circle moment for them is the snuggle. Like that's there. It's very sweet. That's his goal. Also, just that's another sexual thing too. Danny is hiding in his closet. And if this was real, that boy would 100% be masturbating. She should not be allowed to hide in his closet. That's a big deal. He came home and he's holding a pillow and calling it Allison. That is one second away. That's a very good point. Another beef. But I wanted to add that. And then just like what you were saying with the the women and how smart they are. We're so used to a certain trope of what a witch is. And the fact that they like build on this and build off each other and make it so comedic is what makes it gold to me. And they go so big. And there's that one line where they talk about like, she called me ugly. And then it cuts into Bette Midler being really funny about it. Like, that really hurt my feelings. She doesn't even know me. Like, they just take something like that. That could be a certain way and break it down in a really so unexpected clever. comedic way. It was so clever. Ugh, I wonder how much the women improvised, how much was written in the original screenplay versus like what the screenplay looked like after they shot it. Because all these little nuggets like you're saying about the gypsy references or like like all the little individual, it seems like improvised moments when the camera was on them. I'm like, was that in the script? Or I, I feel like all the actresses are talented enough that they just kind of, and knowing Kenny Ortega, I feel like he let them kind of, no pun intended, fly. They're all theater actors. So that's the thing. It's like even Sarah Jessica Parker started on Broadway. I actually don't know the origin of who's the, who's the actress that plays. Kathy Me Jimmy. Yes. She's in Sister Act. Does she have a theater background? I actually don't know if she does. I didn't do my research on her today because I just focused on Bette Midler and um, Kenny Ortega. But she's in so many things that we love. Like, what I like about Kathy and Jimmy as an actor, she's she's so strong in everything she does and she's different in everything she does. 
So like she's in Sister Act and she plays that bubble of light, the one with the enthusiastic personality. She's in this playing like the suck up. She's in um, the wedding planner playing J-Lo's boss and being very official and like, but she's still really funny. These are such great character actors. She's got to have a theater background. It's like the movie for like character actors and like theater actors. And I love the practical effects. Like it's just... You know, they don't make them like they used to. I wish they would do stuff like this. I agree with everything you just said. Like the practical aspects of the film, how things weren't like CGI'd and how they had to find creative ways of telling the story and it works so great. I feel like the best use of that is there's two points when I think they have such a great use of like using practical effects as opposed to like CGI. For me, it's when they first turn Max into a cat. It's all from the witch's perspective. Right? It's so cool how they do it. So, yeah, it's like a straight ahead shot right at the witches, and they're looking into the camera as though we are Thackeray Banks, who's about to be a cat. And they're doing a spell over him, and their hands go down, and their eye line goes down. So, we see him shrinking through their eye line. So, we don't need to like watch him turn into a cat effects wise. We see that something has happened to him, and that he's gotten small, and then he's a cat. Like, that's a creative way of doing that that works beautifully and puts kind of fear into the audience a little bit of like, ooh, they're putting a spell on me. It's so brilliant. Kenny Ortega really. <sighs> we're going to die. Kenny Ortega is someone I'm obsessed with. So we're, we're going to get to him in just a moment. But the, I want to talk about the other scene too, which is when Max brings them back from the dead. So we don't see the three witches rising from the dead. What we see are like Max lights the candle and then we see like the glass that were the light bulbs is shattering. We see that. We see floorboards coming up from the ground and showing green light. We see it through the actors' reactions to how afraid they are. It's it's really cool. We don't need to see the witches rising from the dead because we see that something is happening, that it's not okay, that it's scary. We see real candlelight flaring up from each individual candle and flaring up in the fireplace. And then we see the witches, the door pushes open and we see them in shadow and we hear them cackle. And it's just like, oh, that's all you need. That's better than them rising from the dead. It's more creative, it's more fun, and it really, they like trusted the actors. I thought you were gonna say, only because I've seen a video on this, when they're flying, they made these little mini models of the three witches. There's like a behind the scenes video that you can watch that shows that, that's like a good use of like the actual, not just like camera practical effects, but like actual like prop practical effects that they made that were like works of art, tiny versions of them with little capes that they could control. Instead of CGI, we get all that stuff. I think even them flying is a feat. Like when we see them on their brooms, that's really cool. Yeah. I love all of it. I think they did a great job. It is really scary though that he did have to put moths in his mouth though. I I don't think I would want to do that as an actor. Also, the moths could die. I don't know. It seems like a lot. I need to rewatch that knowing that that's, yeah. It's gross. Ugh. Yeah. Let's talk about Kenny Ortega. We've mentioned him. <sighs> Kenny Ortega, the great Kenny Ortega. If you're a child and you were born in the 90s or 80s, you you love Kenny Ortega and you don't even know it. He is famous originally for like doing choreography for things and for making music videos. Um, so he did the choreography for like Dirty Dancing and St. Elmo's Fire and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Did he work with Paula Abdul also or no? Oh, he might have. I don't know. I know he worked with Madonna. So that's why it's also funny that she's dressed as Madonna in this because he worked with Madonna. Yeah. The mom is dressed as Madonna at the costume party. It's great. We're talking full Vogue years with the cone bra. But you people at home probably know that. So Kenny Ortega starts off as a musical theater performer. By the way, he's openly gay and has been openly gay forever. Like, good for him. Like, for coming out at a time when maybe it didn't feel as good to come out. But he did. 
So he started off in that aspect, uh, started doing choreography and directing, and he worked with Gene Kelly in Xanadu in 1980. Gene Kelly gave him really good advice about like, make sure you understand the medium of film and how to choreograph for film, because that's the most important thing. Like that's what you should be thinking about when you're choreographing, how it's gonna look on a camera before anything else. Isn't that great that Gene Kelly is kind of like his mentor and gives him this advice? The first movie he ever directed is the movie that defined my childhood, which is Newsies. That's my favorite childhood movie of all time. I watched it one billion times. And the year after that, he directs this. So like two movies that defined my childhood, Kenny Ortega was in charge of. Um, He also directed High School Musical. He directed The Cheetah Girls, which I also enjoyed. He directed The Descendants. So a lot of Disney Channel movies up in there. He does so much TV. So like he directed episodes of the Gilmore Girls that are like the best. <laughs> like he he directed he directed an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but he's directed so much television. You can just like look at all the things he's directed. Um, and then he directed a lot of concerts for like really awesome women. So like Cher and Gloria Estefan. He directed the Hannah Montana concert, I guess. <laughs> And he worked a lot with Michael Jackson, but I don't really want to talk about that because I don't really want to talk about Michael Jackson. But he was he was um, pretty close with him. He made that final documentary about Michael Jackson. This is it. And um, so, yeah, Kenny Ortega pretty much defined my childhood in entertainment. And I think he's he's a fantastic choreographer, really great director. I think he knows how to add musical things with ease. Like the two musical numbers in this, which are um, Come Little Children, which is just like a short little Sarah Jessica Parker sung on a broom number that entices kids to follow her, that I should mention, if you watch this as a kid, like I did, you 100% climb down the side of your couch and you pretended you were her with your arms. Like you were flying and you're like doing the arms with her. That's what I did. I'm sure there are other kids out there that did that as well. So you have that number and then you have I Put a Spell on You, which is the best part of the whole movie. Oh my God, I love it so much. It's so good. Cause you got Bette Midler singing and her voice is incredible. And it's like, they turn, I put a spell on you into like this kind of Broadway pop feeling. It's so good. Movie magic moment. I love it. The choreography's great. Everything's great about it. Jamie, shall we break it down? I mean, it's it's one of those, because I saw it late in life, I like, I thought that the whole movie was a musical. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, there's just, I didn't even, I forget about Sarah Jessica Parker's song, but I was like, this is just the one song. I was like, I thought this whole show was filled with music, but um, I mean, it's obviously the standout moment and it's the best version of that song that there is. And it's just an iconic performance. And you can tell they're just having so much fun. And I'm just glad that they like, I feel like we've talked about this already, but I feel like Kenny Ortega really allowed each of the three women to shine. And he was, he like, with that song, but also just the other moments in the script, he was just like, he used the resource, the endless resource of having Bette Midler there. He was just like, do your thing. This is her moment now. And it drives the plot forward. It's really, it's really seamless, all of this. Like, I know we're talking about like a kid's movie that's kind of over the top from the 90s, but it's really well done. Like, I think it was seamless storytelling. No one's believing Max. No one's listening to him. He's saying, like, I brought the witches back from the dead. And you're right. I don't know if I would believe a kid saying that to me. No one believes him. And he's trying to get the whole town to believe him at this party on a microphone. And Winifred turns it into an introduction and does this amazing musical number. And they put a spell on everybody there. Singing, I put a spell on you to make them preoccupied to dance till they die to be away from their kids so they can handle the kids it's such a great way of driving it forward 
And we get a great musical number. Or it wouldn't be as good as if it was just like a song for song's sake. It makes it even better that it's like magic. I take a Broadway aerobics class because of course I do. I've been taking it for years. And every Halloween, the big main one is we do that I put a spell on you number. And everybody uh. dresses up. I usually don't because I don't like to sweat in my costumes. Because <laughs> I sweat a lot at the class. It's a sweaty class. Um, but other people do. They go full out with their costumes and we all dance to this. And I always pretend I'm Bette Midler because you can pretend you're any of them. And I'm obviously going to pretend I'm Bette Midler because I'm not a fool. I got to play Winifred in a reading of it that we did last year. And it was Shame. my dream. And I got to dress up as her and it was really fun. Oh my god! I didn't know that! <sighs> That's yeah. incredible. I'm so happy for you. That would have been my dream, too. It's just the most fun. It's a dream role for everyone. Well, because think about what she did. Like, she probably got this script, and it was probably a normal script. She added everything. All of these characteristics, the voice, all of it. She has the, the teeth, I bet she even added. The insane buck teeth. But the way she holds herself and her witchy stances and just all the choices she makes are what make that so special, I think. And her voice, everything. Like, even just her going, like, book is great. Uh-huh. It, it, all of it. All of She's iconic in just about everything yep. she says. She's an icon, yeah. Oh, I wrote, like, I like that there's jump scares, but not too much. We talked about this earlier. But they utilize that really well, too, where it's, like, a lot of times you'll introduce new characters. It's like, they'll be watching from the window. So you get that moment of a little bit of scariness, of spookiness, of, oh my gosh, who's watching who? And then it's revealed who the character is. And I think the best one that they have, the best jump scare in the whole film, is towards the end, um, after they think they've saved themselves from the witches and the witches come back and kidnap Danny, that moment where, first of all, you see the nail slitting through the screen which is really cool. I love how creepy that looks. Like they sneak in by slipping their nail through the screen window. And then um, when they go in and they think they see Danny in the bed and they rip off the covers and it's Sarah Jessica Parker and the music goes like, like it's got the, that's such a good jump scare moment. It's so good. And they constantly, so if they have kind of a jump scare moment, like they do that, they have a moment with a skeleton entering one scene where it's pulled back and like flashes really quick into the camera. So they'll have those moments that make you kind of jump for a second and give you the Halloween feels, but then they'll follow them with comedy right away or they'll take away the scary right away. So people like me, I don't like scary movies. I don't like feeling scared. Anxiety is real. I don't need it in my films. <laughs> I'm just saying. I've gotten better as I get older, but yeah, I, I'm not into scary films. They're not for me. So for people like me, this is great because it gives us a taste of that without being too much without like actually affecting my life <laughs> and what I think at night in the middle of night. The book is also creepy. Like the eye is creepy. That it's made from human skin and that it was given to them by the devil. So they say the book was given to Winifred by the devil himself, but then they, they see the devil later. And if Winifred's already met the devil, wouldn't she know that wasn't the devil? Just saying. But I guess it would have been hundreds of years maybe people age people can look different maybe the devil takes different forms i don't know these things because it's not none of it's real something i realized this time around so it's they have the scene where they meet the devil but it's not the devil it's gary marshall in a devil costume and his wife penny marshall so she's they're not married in real life they're brother and sister in real life but in this movie they play a married couple which always creeped me out a little bit but they think she's Medusa because she has curlers in her hair. And the best moment of Mary, in my opinion, in the whole movie 
is when she turns, they like see all these modern contraptions. They're wandering around their house. And Winifred goes into the kitchen and she's like, ah, a torture chamber. And Sarah's, you know, dancing with Satan. And Mary discovers the remote control and she turns on that famous commercial with the baby that's like, and she squeals and is like so into it. That's my favorite moment of hers in the movie. She's so good. The realization I had this time around was it's always creeped me out that they're brother and sister and playing a married couple. But then this time I was like, whoa, the brother-sister theme continues. How magical is it that they're brother and sister in a film that's glorifying the brother-sister relationship? Whoa. So I appreciated that actually this time. And it's a great cameo from both of them. It really is. That cameo is perfect. Everything drives the plot forward. This is a pretty tight movie. There's nothing in it that doesn't need to be, which I appreciate. But there's a lot of foreshadowing. Like before uh, she has, she goes sick on Ralph and has the dog chase the girls out of the house. There's uh, that little sign in the corner that's like, beware, angry dog or whatever the hell it says. And then, um, and then it's just that teeny tiny little dog, but they're still afraid. And then again, before they do the daylight savings time, they have the foreshadowing of, they do a close up of the, the headlight before they even go in the house. So you're like, oh, that's coming. And then before Binks dies, they have him fall on top of Emily's grave, on Emily Binks's grave. And I was like, oh my God, he's gonna die on her grave. Oh, oh, so many things. I mean, you know this movie very well. I've only seen it four or five times, four times, which is nothing compared to you. So I, I wanna talk about the tropes too that are handled in this movie. Cause like, if you were like, okay, what are some things that you think about witches? Just going at, like, witches association, go. Like, what do you think? Black clothes, like, pointy hats. Mean, creepy, warty. Basically, like, the opposite of, like, the glam witches that they are. Especially Bette Midler. Another one of my favorite witch movies from the 90s is The Witches, the Roald Dahl original, which are very different witches. Um, that movie oh, terrified Terrifying me. witches. So I'm, I'm, it's nice to see these more, like, glam, fun, Bette Midler-type witches, because I think they did a good job. Even the things you were saying, they don't they don't match with these witches. I, and I, I was writing down things too, like when I think of things that witches would have too, it's like, okay, so a witch would have like a black cat and a cauldron and potion and um, brooms. And like they even take the Halloween trope of like zombies, but they turn everything around. It's not ever what you think it's going to be. The witches in this film never wear black pointy hats and they don't wear black. They each have like an assigned color and it's great. And they each blend each other's colors. So like Winifred is defined as green, but she's wearing purple. And Sarah's defined as purple, but she's got red in her outfit. And Mary's designed as red, but she's got purple hair. So they have like things that align with each other because they're family and they're sisters, but they each have a color and it's not black and they're not wearing witch hats. Mary has that really fun hair that could potentially be a witch hat shape. That is a nod to that, I'm sure. So it's like, that's not what witches are. This is what witches are. And then it just like does that with everything. But Thora Birch wears a witch's hat. Well, she does. All the modern people do that are talking about the past. They all have the witch's hats on. But none of the actual real witches ever wear witch's hats. They have really cool capes that are beautiful and colorful. Ugh. And then, um, yeah, and like, I don't know about, they don't really have like words and stuff, but I don't think any of that matters. But even like, so black cats are supposed to be bad luck, right? But in this case, the black cat saves their life. Or like zombies are supposed to be bad, but in this case, the zombie is really friendly and helpful. 
And then the brooms, like there's the one point when they don't even have the brooms and they have to use the vacuum and the mop and right. It's classic. So it's so brilliant. I like that they take all those tropes and change them and shift them and use them in different ways. And I think we're probably used to things like that now. But maybe at the time this was something new, you know, a new way of looking at things. I don't know. I was six. I don't remember. I also wanted to share some fun facts with you. Ooh. So the guy that plays Max, his name is Omri Katz. And he doesn't, like, do a ton of stuff, but he's good in this. Do you know who that was supposed to be? Do you know what actor was cast as that first? No. Leonardo frickin' DiCaprio was cast as Max. And he turned it down so he could be in What's Eating Gilbert Grape with Johnny Depp. Good move, Leonardo DiCaprio. I disagree. I think <laughs> that this oh, I think that's a very good is move. the best film. I mean, it's good for, like, his career and for, like, being a serious actor. Remember how I was, like, I, had, I never watched... Hocus Pocus until I was an adult. I did watch Gilbert Grape as a kid. I grew up in a weird household. So, like, I know that movie so well. While every other kid was watching Hocus Pocus, I was, like, thoroughly engrossed in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. I was a very intellectual child. But, yeah, so I that movie has a special place in my heart. And Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, made the right choice. You're right in terms of, like, an acting career perspective. But in terms of a pleasing Sarah Greenfield perspective. Sure. That is a crazy timeline Arguably, that role in What's Eating Gilbert Grape defined Leonardo's career and, like, made him a standout actor. I mean, he was phenomenal in that. But it makes me wonder, God, I want to watch it again. It's so good. If he had chosen to be in Hocus Pocus instead, like, where would his career be now? Because the other guy, I mean, who knows? Yeah, Omri Katz does a great job. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. But I just think that's so fascinating that it, it was offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. It should have gotten, uh, what's his name? Siwa. Casper. Oh, Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa. <laughs> Devin Sawa. My little self had a crush on him, or too. Or JTT. <gasps> I would have died. Oh, God. What a crush. I had such a crush on him. He was in Man of the House this year, and I loved that movie, too, which now does not hold up. But, oh, that's right. That's right. Because they have, they go, the, what they belong to is totally inappropriate. But I loved that movie, too. God, 1993. What a year for, for movies and for children. Um, also, this movie was not a hit when it came out. And again, I think I remember when it came out. It was in the summertime. And I think someone asked me if I wanted to see it and I was too scared. Um, so it came out in the summer because the studio execs were like, well, that's when kids are off of school. They'll go see this Halloween film, which was so stupid. That's dumb. Um, so it wasn't a hit when it came out, but it, it's become a cult classic because, first of all, it's obviously so good. And um, second of all, places started showing it on TV. It's like what happened with It's a Wonderful Life, how when that came out, it wasn't a hit. But through being shown on TV, it became like a classic staple of, of Christmas time. So now this is like a classic Halloween staple. I feel like that's with so many movies where like Fox Office flops that later were great. Like Rocky Horror Picture Show didn't do well. And now it's like, that is like the definition of cult classic. And they show it in theaters all the time, which is really funny. Yeah. I wonder though about the contracts and stuff for this. Cause I wonder like, you know, the skeleton guy that sings, I've, I gotta put a spell on you. We'll never know what he looks like. And his part is so fantastic in this. Cause he's the guy singing that song. And um... I, one will always wonder what he looks like. Like, and IMDb does not help. Two, um, I wonder if he still gets paid for this. If all the people in this, I hope they're making bank every single year when this plays on TV. That's what I hope for these people. Yeah, I, I wonder what their contracts are also. Like, I want Thor Birch to be still making that cash. I hope so. And Doug Jones, too. I want them all to be making money off this forever. They deserve it. I know. I have a little insider baseball with somebody yes. who was in um, A Christmas Story. 
Yes. And those actors did not get compensated. They were like famously cut out of a lot of prop stuff and, and royalties and yeah, not no bueno. That sucks because that's another example of something that flopped in the theater and did really well afterwards. <laughs> exactly. That sucks. They should be making bank off that. That's not fair. Um, there's two more just little fun facts I want to share about the making of the film. One is that David Kirshner just came up with the story on the fly. He was putting his kids to bed one night and he saw a cat and he came up with the story about how that cat was really a boy and which is turned him into a cat and all that. Like it just it came from him telling a bedtime story. Yeah. And then obviously someone ended up writing the script like he didn't write the script, but that was like the basis of the idea, which I loved. So there was that. And then um, John Debney, this score is awesome, I think. I think it's a great example of like a 90s musical score that's not too cheesy, but it's just right. And this guy, John Debney, did it, and he did it in only two weeks because they had another guy named James Horner that was supposed to write it, but he had to back out at the last minute. So this other guy did it in two weeks, he wrote this score. But James Horner, the part that he wrote was the Come Little Children song is his. So that stayed in the movie. Something I love about this movie that we're going to talk about now is I love how gorgeous it is, how it feels. It's so like autumnal and it's beautiful. Like the nature is beautiful and you've got this soundtrack in the back that's so beautiful, like a great movie score. So I always dig all that stuff. Like when Binks is like running through the forest in the beginning because it's the olden days and it's like trees and sunset, we've decided, and all of these beautiful ambient things. That's what makes it lovely to me and so it just feels like fall when you watch it it's such a cozy movie it's such a cozy movie um and something i was thinking about this time too was how they use different sets for when binks is running through the forest and when max is riding through the forest but something i connected more this time was like oh they were both going through anguish at the same time in the forest they both have their like it's the Mm -hmm. mirror of like i'm in the forest and i'm in anguish and i wish it was the same forest but they couldn't shoot it that way and i get it yes so yeah, and that that was all shot uh, really in Salem. So most of it was shot in like a soundstage in Burbank, but they took the whole cast to like Salem and another Massachusetts town, and they really shot all those exteriors there. Those were all oh, real. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's why you really see the fog breath. I didn't realize that. I think I thought it was it was all shot in the studio, but that I, now I'm like, oh yeah, the Halloween town. It's it is such like a quintessential Halloween town, and that's cool that they actually filmed it there as opposed to on a lot. I do want to talk about the Queen Bette Midler, our divine Miss M. So she is, I would say she's the star of this film. This film lets everybody shine, but she's she's the star of the film. Um, she's a Tony, Emmy, Grammy award-winning artist. Not Oscar. If anybody needs to EGOT, it's her. Right? But also how, okay, so maybe The Wind Beneath My Wings was not nominated for Beaches, but she should have won the Oscar for Best Song for Beaches. But, but maybe she didn't write it. I don't know. Don't you get it if you perform it, though? She deserves an Oscar. We need to give her a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. She should have an Oscar. It's just nonsense. Bette Midler needs it yesterday. So, okay, Bette Midler. Born in Honolulu. I love that about her. Mm. <laughs> she, yeah, she was one of the only Jewish kids, and she grew up in an Asian community. And so I feel like she's got a sense of, like, broader horizons because of her upbringing. So there's that. Uh, she kind of her big break was playing title on Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof. She was not the original title, but she did play title. I, know that. Um, I remember it from her E True Hollywood story from forever ago. 
Um, so in the 1970s is kind of when she became more famous and she became famous for singing in the gay bathhouse, the Continental Bath. She had like a huge gay fan base and she had this kind of like raunchy show. It was like a cabaret act that she would sing. Her accompanist, do you know who her accompanist is? No. It's Barry Manilow. Amazing. So Barry Manilow was her accompanist and they agreed to co-produce an album called The Divine Miss M, which was what made her a huge singing star. Yes. It was nominated. I think I'm sure it won Grammys, too. I don't I bet it won Grammys. So that's her rise. And then eventually she transitions to film and she does The Rose in 1979, which is like her big thing. The Rose. The song is big. The movie's big. And it's kind of like based on Janis Joplin. And some of her other big movies that people at home would know are Big Business, Oliver and Company, Beaches, which to me is the greatest Bette Midler role of all time. I think it's even better than this, if I'm being honest. I've never seen Beaches. We will watch it together because I love it and you will love it. Cool. Down and Out in Beverly Hills, she's in. We had mentioned she played Mama Rose in like the made-for-TV gypsy musical. Um, she was in For the Boys, which is like a 1940s USO movie, which is important to her because she loves that kind of music. Wow. And then she's very also famously in The First Wives Club, which... Another solid classic from her youth. That's very cool. And then she's named after Betty Davis, but it's not pronounced the same way. But she was literally named for her. And in high school, she was voted the most talkative and most dramatic. (laughs) And she studied theater in college in Hawaii for a few, like, for a few semesters. But then she got cast as an extra in a film that was shot there and used that money to fly to New York. And that was, like, what set her up. And she did a ton of, like, off-Broadway shows before booking Seidel. Whoa. So, yeah, that's kind of her stuff. Oh, and she was a frequent uh, guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That was another thing that propelled her a lot. Um, and she was his final final guest on that show. Because that was a big deal. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was like the biggest talk show. <laughs> you know? So to be, she sang a song, his favorite song to him as like the goodbye moment. And some of her famous songs are Wind Beneath My Wings, we've mentioned. Friends, which is featured in The Last of Sheila, which we talked about on the show. The Rose, From a Distance, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And she's been married to her husband forever. She's been married to this artist named Martin Van Hasselberg. I wrote his name down funny. They have one daughter. But I just think she's such a force to be reckoned with. Wow, imagine your mom being Bette Midler. That's crazy. That would be so intimidating. Because she's been so talented for so long. Like, she's in her 70s. I can't do math as we've established. Let me check this really quick. So she's like 76 and still going. Like, in her 60s, she had her Vegas residency. In her 70s, she wins a Tony for being on Broadway, for being a great singer and actor. That's amazing. She's fantastic. And most of her movies came out in her 40s, which I love. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I remember this, too, from the E! Hollywood special from whenever I watched it in, like, high school, was um, she got labeled as being difficult to work with the second she started producing. And that happened to Goldie Hawn, too. And Goldie Hawn talked about it on the Oprah thing where she was like, look, I didn't realize how awful like sexism was in Hollywood until I produced something. And then all of a sudden I went from someone people liked working with to like, oh, she's so difficult. And she said, it's literally when you express opinions. That's when they start calling you difficult. And you're like, but it's my job to express opinions. I'm a producer. That's my job. But people won't let you. And the same thing happened to Bette Midler. Jesus. That's awful. She had a reputation for being difficult. That started when she started producing. And because she started producing early on. Wow. Oof. It's very annoying. Very obnoxious. Especially because like a couple nights ago I watched the Palm Beach story with Daniel and Rudy Valley's in that and he literally physically abuses people on set and people are like, eh, whatever. It's fine. He does his job. Ugh, I hate this Right? World. So, like, a woman expresses an opinion and she's difficult. Rudy Valley punches people and they're like, eh, whatever. It's fine. That's 
despicable. So that's annoying. Also, again, we should mention Sarah Jessica Parker. I didn't go into her, but she's obviously incredibly famous and talented. Mm -hmm. You know her from Sex and the City, The Family Stone, The First Wives Club, Footloose, Ed Wood, Honeymoon in Vegas. Girls just want to have fun. Girls just want to have fun. I thought of you. I love you. Jamie, you remind me of that movie. I do. You remind me of that movie because yeah. you love it. And oh, I watched it because I mean, you love it. And I loved it. Oh, had you not seen I it? I hadn't seen it. And you were like, Sarah, please watch it. Oh, wild. And then I did. And I loved it. It was so much fun. Is it a good movie? No. Is it so much fun? Yes. 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 That's all it needs. And then Kathy and Jimmy, obviously we mentioned she's in Sister Act and Sister Act 2. Both of the great Sister Acts. Um, she does a ton of voiceover work. And then she's obviously in The Wedding Planner, Veronica's Closet. She's in so many things. Her IMDb is just packed. And then we mentioned James Marsden earlier, who does the voice of Thackeray Banks, but is not actually playing Thackeray Banks. But I want to mention him, too, because he's a huge voiceover artist. He's done so many voices for so many things. And he was Max Goof in a Goofy movie. Yeah. And then I mentioned earlier he was in Boy Meets World. He plays like Eric's buddy in high school. <laughs> he was in Full House and he was in this show that I remember watching called Almost Home, which used to be on the Disney Channel sometimes. And it was like a sitcom from the 90s. Oh, yes. That was part of the Torkelsons, but then changed to Almost Home. Brittany Murphy was in it. Anyway, there's all that. And then Thora Birch, she plays Danny. She goes on to do Now and Then, American Beauty, Ghost World. She does Patriot Games. So she has a pretty prolific career, I would say. <laughs> she has a good career after that. I don't know if she's still working now, though. Do you know if Thora Birch still acts? I saw her at the Cinespia now and then. I was there too. She like introduced it. Wasn't she there, right? I remember Demi Moore being there. Or was it somebody else? I can't remember if she was there or not. No, I think it was It was her. Demi Moore was sitting behind us. Yes, I remember seeing Demi Moore there yeah. with her long hair. My friends got really good seats and she was sitting behind us. So I was so distracted by the fact that Demi Moore was like two rows behind me. Holy shit. Oh, wow. That was a great viewing. But yeah, she was in good stuff. So even if she's not acting now, she has a legacy. Omri Katz uh, doesn't do a ton. He did, he was on like a TV show before this. And then um, Vanessa Shaw, she's been in some stuff too. She was in the 310 to Yuma, like from 2007. Eyes Wide Shut, The Hills Have Eyes. I don't know if she acts anymore, but she, she did stuff. So people in this did stuff. They acted in other things. And they're good in this. And again, obviously, I expressed this earlier, but I really do appreciate... Just that everyone is given a time to shine and that women are like valued and listened to in this. That it's not like just the man, the hero saving the day, that it's like everybody saving the day. And that you are on, not usually on the witch's side, but when the witches go after the bullies, you're rooting for the witches. So bullies, take that into account. Mm -hmm. No one likes you. You're awful. We'll root for witches before we root for you. So don't be a bully. It's true. That's the ultimate takeaway. Bullies are the real scary thing on Halloween. I mean, this is really only going to resonate with a few people, but the bully looks like Matt Lang. Oh, oh, a little. The long-haired blonde bully. Like, not a ton. The like, blonde bully. Matt could do that for Halloween, is what we're saying. Yeah. yeah, I really think he looks just like him, but... I forgot one important thing, which is getting back to Thackeray Binks the cat. I've wondered this my whole life, and I've wondered it with friends. When he is a cat... Does he have sex with other cats? Because he eats mice. And I've wondered if there are a bunch of little binkses out in the world. Because he would have made so many babies. And that's just been a curiosity of mine. I like the way your mind works. I mean, he's handsome as a human, so like maybe he's also like a handsome cat. That's a very pretty cat. Unfortunately, and I hate that my mind goes here, I know a weird fun fact that apparently like 
cat penises. Yes. <laughs> you can cut this out. Cat penises are like spikes, like <gasps> um, claws. What? And so like if you ever hear cats having sex, supposedly like the reason why cats are like loud when they have sex is because it really hurts the female oh, cat. Because no. like the penis like has barbs that attach onto her. So I don't like to think about him having sex. Oh, cat. no. Well, because it's a long time. 300 years is a long time. Jamie, thanks for sharing that information about cats. I didn't know, but I've wondered it. You're welcome. I'm kind of messed up. Because he does, again, he does eat mice. He doesn't eat human food. Yeah. So I was like, he probably's had a bunch of cat sex and made a bunch of cat babies. And there's little binxes out there. Anyway, I've thought that in my head. So I had to share it. Some top quotes I have, if you want to ponder, the yabos, you know. <laughs> Definitely yabos. That's a great quote of, you know, when uh, when Allison, they go to her house for trick-or-treating and they find out she's rich and it's her house and she's dressed in like this gorgeous like 1700s gown, which every child coveted because it's so pretty. Danny comments, I really love your costume too. Of course, I could never wear anything like that because I don't have any, what do you call them, Max? Yabos? Max likes your yabos. In fact, he loves them, which is just... It's fantastic. I can't believe she would do that to him. That is so humiliating. That crosses a line. I can't believe she does that. It's great. It's funny. But that crosses a line. <laughs> just the sincerity with which she says it make, really makes that line especially. And the part she's like, he's a little leaguer when she's realizing her brother can't stand up to her against the bullies. Uh, and then in the end, he saves her because that's the arc of the story. I also love the ice line. My name ain't Ernie no more. It's ice. And then when he turns around and yeah. it says ice on his head, I get that gets me yeah. every time. What else? There's so many good quotes in this. So Bette Midler defines the whole movie in one quote, and they always show it on the previews for it. So she'll t she tells you everything you need to know. She's like, we must find the book, brew the potion, and suck the lives out of the children of Salem before sunrise. Otherwise, it's curtains. And you're like, oh, that's great. That's really nice that they summarize the whole movie in that little... It's right there. Really nice. And then she goes, Dost thou comprehend? I wish they did that in every movie, just to, like, briefly summarize what the movie's going to be about, so that it helps me. Like, sometimes when I go see, like, a Shakespeare show, I like to read the synopsis beforehand. So, it's nice. This isn't a line, but I love it anytime Binks has the paw swipe. Anytime Thackeray Binks the cat is like, I'm waiting for you, and he like swipes a paw at them, I love it. <laughs> the way they did all that cat stuff, I looked it up because I was like, how did they do the cat stuff? They had 12 different cats that could do like one really good trick. Whoa. So, like there's like a cat that would swipe or a cat, like they all could do something. And then they had an animatronic cat too. So it was like, that was how they did all the cat stuff. They were really using some real cats and I love it. I wonder if they repurposed that cat and used it for Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But that one looks so fake, though, don't you think? Yeah. His name is Salem, right? Yeah, his name is Salem. Yeah. Wow, 12 cats. That's impressive. They should have Tonys and Oscars and Emmys. They should be EGOTs. Cat paw acting. Don't read that book, and he, like, closes it with his cat paw. Nothing good comes from that book. Paw swipe full of emotion. That's wild. I like that there's no such thing as a cat with, like, two talents. Like, they're only, like, they're literally one trick cats because <laughs> that was all they could count on them for like fly in the swiping cat we need the the meowing cat all right we need the jumping cat this is the swiping cat get him off like it's do you have any other moments or quotes that you want to share 
I mean, Yabos was going to be at the top of my list just because it's iconic. Yeah, Yabos is the top. Um, it's the top. But Yabos is the one that stands out in my memory alone. And then, like, um, when Sarah goes, amak, 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 amak. Oh, amak, amak, amak. Yes, of course. People at home, I don't even need to break it down because it doesn't matter. She just thinks that word is fun and says it until she gets hit in the stomach by Winifred and goes, ugh. Such good comedy. It's such good physical comedy. And when she's in the back just swinging her legs like a bell for no reason, they're like having a scene and she's just in the back having fun. Early on, she establishes that she likes to do weird things in the back, like dance. And so when she was like, and Sarah was dancing idiotically in the background, she like calls it out in the film. So good. I love it. I'm sure there's more. There's so many quotes. There's so many good moments. This movie's just, it's such a delight from start to end. It, the costumes are great too. We didn't really talk about that, but they're perfect. The colors are great. It's all like gem tones. The sky always looks beautiful. Everything looks gorgeous all the mm-hmm. time. Ugh, I want it to be Halloween now. I remember I watched the movie and I was like, Ugh, now I want it to be Halloween. This hot girl summer is over. Now it's witchy. Yeah, now it's now it's witch girl winter, witch girl autumn. Oh, when Binks really does die, it is pretty sad. And they're good at when they first kill Binks and he comes back to life. I remember as a kid being like, they killed him. He's dead. And you're horrified by it. But it makes you almost okay for it at the end. It's like you got your extra Binks time that you thought you weren't going to have. So then when he really does die and there really is ghost closure, which I mentioned earlier, the ghost closure, it's great because the final shots of the film are Thackeray Binks's ghost and his sister Emily's ghost walking through like the gates of the cemetery, which are quote unquote like the gates of heaven. Maybe we don't know. But then they show Danny and her brother, and they have a close-up. So it's like ghost siblings, like, leaving into the sunrise. Real people that are not ghosts, that are siblings watching the sunrise. It's like full sibling connection circle. Mm-hmm. The final shot of the film is not on any siblings, but on the gates closing. Like, the story is over. Mm, indeed. Them turning into stones at the end is very fun. I don't think that she really looks like that stone. No, but it's a fun concept. It's such a fun visual. And I like that they explained it because I think you'd be like, why is she turning to stone? But they mentioned it. They were like, it's hollowed ground. They can't walk on hollowed ground. What I don't get, though, is that she definitely sucked some of his life out of him. So maybe it just wasn't enough life. So he should be a little older. He sh- Well, he sh- it's more that like, wouldn't she be able to live then? Because don't you just need some life? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I've had a lot of time to think about it. Yeah, maybe she, because she's a stone, she's like a statue at the end, like she got that as opposed to just turning into dust, like she gets a little life. Because maybe she doesn't totally die of the not getting enough life. Maybe it's that she touched the ground and she's stone and nothing can protect you from that. Okay, I'll take that. Or maybe she's still consciously alive inside the stone and that's a living hell in and of itself. But it explodes. She like exists like within the, the like pieces of stone. That would be really shitty. We're gonna head to the modern lens, which is like what didn't really hold up. So, first of all, there are no people of color in this film, like, almost at all. None that have parts, none that have lines. They, like, they have black people at the party that they interact with, and that's about it. They don't get to speak, and it's a bummer. And then the racist shit is there is racist candy at that place. It's like the, um, did you see it? It was racist cherry candy that had, like, little pictures of, like, cartoon fake Asian people. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. It was not okay. I was like, they definitely don't make that cherry anymore. They don't make that anymore. But at the party, there's a white guy dressed as a Japanese businessman. And you're like, ooh, that really doesn't hold up. That's the one that stuck out. That's rough to look at. That should not be in this film. So yeah, that's shitty to see. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, So there's all of that. 
And then um, the double feature. Portion- I mean, the double feature thing I think is the witches roll doll because it's so the opposite of the kind of witches that they are, and also a great movie, but scary. I cannot believe they showed this to my class when I was a kid. I used to go to this like daycare center, and they would show us really inappropriate things <laughs> that were way too scary oh for our age. Because I think I was like five, and they showed us the witches, and it completely terrified me. I had to leave. Like when they took off their faces. I couldn't handle it. I had to leave the room. Yes, it's... And so I was terrified, and I couldn't... My cousin tried to show me Sound of Music when I was six, and I thought that the nuns were the witches. I thought that they were the same as Rural Doll Witches, and she had to sit oh, me no. down and explain to me, nuns are not witches. <laughs> um, that was a different thing. Uh, yeah. So the witches, like, truly haunted me as a child. I really was terrified of it. It's terrifying. But now as an adult, I can appreciate the practical effects of it and how just how well done it I haven't seen it, but I hear it's, like, got this really kooky, awesome sense of humor. So I think I would actually like to see it now. And I think I could appreciate it now. But I don't think that they should have shown it to a group of five-year-olds at my daycare center. Absolutely not. <laughs> they also showed that us ET, terrifying. which also scared me at five. You just need to be a little older. Yeah, that made me cry, and that was that was a bad choice on whoever was directing the programming. I think that's a great double feature. I feel like this one's ridiculous because we know the double features because it's like a bunch of Halloween movies. If I was legit watching this for me for fun, I swear to God I would watch it with Double Double Toil and Trouble, the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen film, where they are two twin witches. That's what I would watch. <laughs> Did you ever watch it? Uh, Probably yes, but I don't remember it. But I watched a lot of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen stuff. So I think I've seen it, but it's like I don't have the memory to really reference it. Also, that's a connection. So Cloris Leachman is in that movie with them. The role of Winifred was written with her in mind. That's who they wanted to be Winifred. Oh, fascinating. And Bette Midler expressed interest. And here we are. Halloween Town is another thing I would watch it with. I respect you at home if you don't want to watch that, but I love it. It's Disney Channel. It's Debbie Reynolds. It's just campy delight is how I would describe it. And I think just like to get to know Sarah Jessica Parker and other stuff too. Like girls just want to have fun. Sarah Jessica Parker is great beyond just Sex and the City. Yeah, but she is really great in Sex and the City, I think. The problem is once Sex and the City happened, she was only ever seen again as Carrie Bradshaw. So it's nice to see her earlier stuff where you go like, oh, she's, she does other things. She had a career pre-Carrie. The first Wives Club she did after this with Bette Midler. And that's... Yes, that was fantastic. Um, but well. some other like, if I was talking like what to watch this with, I might watch it with, um, what did I write down? I wrote The Addams Family and Addams Family Values. Obviously, mm-hmm. solid Halloween Definitely. double feature. Practical Magic is a Halloween film I also enjoy about witches, but it's like contemporary witches. And it's darker than you think it's going to be, but it's still good. But it's not scary. Um, The Nightmare Before Christmas obviously would be great. Beetlejuice would be great. We said The Witches. I wrote Labyrinth. I wrote Scream. I wrote Teen Witch, obviously. Mm, You know, what a film. I wrote Twitches, that when T and Tamara Mowry are teen witches. Ah. And then, okay. Oh, and then if you want a classic movie, I Married a Witch is a classic movie. I haven't seen it, but I'm seeing it like really soon. And then here's what I would watch this with too. So there's this movie called The Worst Witch that is actually not a good movie at all. It's from the 80s and it's like not good. But, but, but Tim Curry is in it and he has a musical number in it. 
that you can find on YouTube that delights me to no end. I watch it every Halloween along with Hocus Pocus and I just die. It's called Anything Can Happen on Halloween and he plays a wizard and it's when they just started doing like tech things. So he's like in front of a green screen and they add all this nonsense tech and it's from the early 80s and it's just like terrible and great and I love it. He goes all out. He is invested in it and I need everyone at home to go watch it. Anything Can Happen on Halloween. It's on YouTube, please just watch it for me. You'll you'll just plots. Thank you for that recommendation. It's it cracks me up. It's so good. So Jamie, do you have anything you want to add before we go? It's a great movie and it continues to be a classic, even for somebody like me who discovered it as an adult. So um, it's never too late to rewatch movies from your childhood that you may have missed out on. And now I want to rewatch it again now that you've given me great insight on all the fun little little movie magic moments that I missed out on. Well, I'm so glad that we talked about this. Thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy watching movies through your Uh, eyes. Thanks. You make me see things too, Jamie. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. If you have a better end line for me, please let me know because I know we won't actually see you, but I don't know how else to end the show. So we'll see you next time. Hold on to your yabos. Hold on to your yabos on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Jamie Lynn Beatty. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm and become a contributing member. That would be pretty great. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.